In many ways, running a legal practice is like running a business. For a practice to thrive, solicitors need to understand and appreciate the importance of good financial management. In this program, Malcolm Heath, Legal Risk Manager at LawCover, and Anthony Etzine of AE Consulting discuss why poor financial management is a forerunner to professional negligence claims and what solicitors can do to minimise the likelihood of problems occurring while working towards a more profitable and successful law practice. Anthony, thanks very much for joining us. Pleasure. LawCover's claims data identifies the key causes of professional negligence claims made against law firms arising mainly from poor communications between the solicitor and the client, poor systems and documentation procedures and incorrect advice. They're the main areas. But since LawCover commenced a program over 10 years ago looking at firms with higher claims and going out to those firms, visiting the firms to interview the owners, a significant contributing factor to the cause of the claims has been identified as poor financial management. So today we're going to discuss why poor financial management is a forerunner to professional negligence claims, what are the factors that lead to this problem, and importantly, what solicitors can do to minimise the likelihood of this problem occurring, and better still, work towards a more profitable and successful law practice. It's ambitious. So Anthony, are you ready? Yep, let's go. All right. Let's discuss the legal profession firstly as a marketplace, the market, and then let's look at the changes, the trends and some of the threats. So um, where do you want to start? Well, it's interesting when you look at the statistics, uh, the marketplace is, in my language, is very highly fragmented. Yep. What I mean by that is that 87% of all legal practices are sole owners or sole practitioners. Mm. Also, when you add the next tier up, which is really two to four owners, which is about 11%, that means 98% of all firms are very small practices. Yeah. Um, that means that it's, when I say fragmented, it's a lot of people competing for the pool of fee base or the fee base income that happens to be there. The other thing that is interesting in yeah. the stats is that um, the number of solicitors in private practice since 2000 have virtually doubled. Yeah. Now, when you Double. put all of that together, the, it's got to have some impact on their marketplace, particularly in particular, competitive pressures. Yeah, yeah, and so that's incredible, that, you know, doubling mm. of the solicitor population since 2000, yeah. you know, it really is. And so the changes in the marketplace affecting law practices, what, what do you see them to have been? Well, I mean, well, I've alluded to the first one already, which is the competitive pressures. Yep. I mean, uh, you've got all those people competing for that for that pool, but they're also yeah. being impacted by non-legal firms coming into their yes. space. yeah, yeah. Um, you'll also find that in-house legal of corporates and companies are doing a lot more work instead of farming it out to the practices. And mm -hmm. similarly with government. I mean, again, uh, when you have that level of people competing for that pool of income, it really means that the law firms have, uh, they're going to be pricing pressures and they're going to have to sharpen their pencil. Yeah. Yeah. And with that pricing pressure, competition, the economies of scale, what about the uh, pressure on technology improvements? I think, well, it depends on what practice you're talking about. A lot mm -hmm. of the firms that I went out to see are the, sm the very small firms. Um, they do use some element of technology. Um, however, 
even with that little amount of technology, a lot of them don't keep pace with it. I mean, yeah. with what it is. I mean, the big, the larger firms will be talking about artificial intelligence and everything else, but that's not where ninety-eight percent of the of the profession is currently at. Yeah, there are important developments to understand and uh, look within the current marketplace, which solicitors practice in, and appreciate how risk management can be best applied so it is actually good for their practice and their business. That is where we're looking at identifying opportunities, understanding the changes and the dynamics of the market, but looking at the consumer and government expectations and needs and how competitors are adapting as well. What is succeeding, what's not, and applying those factors mm. to your own law practice. In a marketplace that we have at the moment with the amount of competitive pressures, any sort of planning yep. is going to be absolutely vital. We're talking about the financial side here, so even more so uh, good financial planning and good financial management is absolutely essential. My experience yeah. when I went out to the practices for law cover is that, that this was in many of the instances lacking. There was a severe deficit of knowledge across a range of different things, not in all practices, but in uh, quite a few of them. The sort of things I'm talking about is that there was poor understanding of you know, profit, uh, profit and loss, mm -hmm. working capital management, Fundamentally, in a lot of the very small practices, not very aware of the business model used to generate profit. Mm -hmm. um, no benchmarking being used, whether internal or external. Interestingly, uh, uh, quite a few of them struggle to read financial statements, to just get the basic input from, from the financial documents that they were doing. Yep. And I felt that often led to an underinvestment in their practice. They didn't spend the sort of money they needed to do on training. You, mm -hmm. went, you talked about IT early on. Maybe just simple stuff like upgrading their software programs, et cetera, were not being done. And underlying all of this, and, and probably it's a theme throughout everything I'm going to say today, their cash flow management generally was pretty ordinary. Right, yeah, and critical to the practice. And you've, been, you've visited many practices um, during your consultancy with Law Cover and have provided solicitors with risk management advice, financial advice on behalf of Law Cover through that. And you also present one of the uh, principal's workshops looking at um, it's all about the money, mm. actually, all about the dollar. Can I just ask you to look at uh, drawing on a couple of firms and your experiences going through one or two firms that you've visited? to get your feedback on what you've observed and um, perhaps looking at the issues of financial management, financial stress. Mm. Broadly, because I did this for a number of years, with all the analysis that one did prior to going in, I often there were often a couple of key messages that I used to hammer very, hammer, you know, hammer with the partners quite uh, strongly in order to get the attitudinal changes that you need to get. Mm -hmm. um, what I used to find and I used to hammer a lot is the absolute need for financial planning. We talked about it earlier on, yeah. but I really used to stress this very much with them. Particularly, I used to ask them at the end of every financial year, do you prepare a basic budget? I'm not asking for something of complex, just mm -hmm. simple stuff. Do you analyze what you did last year? Do you have a sense of, do you, did you make any profit? Do you know which areas that you are profitable and those that aren't profitable. 
what are their billings and collections always, always was a, was a big thing. Yes. That was the first key thing I used to, uh, I found with the ones I used to go with, where I used to get the most input or most result by going through that. The next thing was what I've always said is that no business is better than bad business. So in other words, what I mean by that is sometimes you just have to say no. Sometimes mm -hmm. there are clients that you should not be taking. Sometimes there are clients you would love to take on but cannot take on because of you, you, the lack of resources that you have in that point in time. And if you take on the bad, uh, the bad business, the amount of time and effort that you spend on that instead of spending your time and effort on productive clients and, and yes. other areas it, and the energy levels and all of that, it just... Over a period of time, it just takes the fun out of the practice. It's, it sucks your energy out of you and all those things. We hear that quite a bit with the, the solicitor saying, if only I didn't take that client on, I knew I shouldn't have. And it's easy in hindsight, but that gut feeling can be a very good flag yeah, as well. Yeah, mm. yeah. The other thing that I always say when I'm trying to get some improvement is I always try and pick the low-hanging fruit. Yeah. Okay, so what I'm talking about, that there's always things that you can get them to do where they get some success, which gives the encouragement to carry on. And what I'm talking about, generally are talking about there, particularly because the cash flow was always so bad, this is not rocket science stuff. Go and have a look at their debtors. Why haven't you collected that? Why haven't you done that? Why haven't you built that? And then really start to get them to focus on that, get some money coming in, mm. and then we can start to talk about the investment in um, software and clients or whatever, sorry, software, uh, staff or whatever it might be. Part of that would then always lead on to which which clients you, you've got now, you know you should not really have, yeah. what are we going to do about it? Um, and get them also starting down the track of thinking about benchmarks. What I mean by that, the own internal targets. Yeah. Something that can measure themselves going forward. With that data problem, that, um, I don't know, that psychological barrier or not going out to collect outstanding payments. What is that? Why do you think that's happening? The, the invoices may be late in being sent, but why aren't they being followed up promptly? Uh, because inherently a lot of lawyers struggle with the business side yeah. of running a practice. Mm -hmm. There may be other issues. In essence, they are not very good at it. You know, they... They have a hard time eyeballing their clients. Mm -hmm. um, in those set of circumstances, when I assessed that they were not good at it, albeit I think they are the best people to chase, it's sometimes better to get somebody internal, like a somebody who's not shy about asking. And that generally yeah. was the accountant, the bookkeeper, the general manager, etc. Yes, okay. Um, the worst thing they can do is allow those debtors to go beyond the 90, 180-day period because broadly speaking, when that's the case, 80% of the time you're going to have to write that write off that amount. Yes, indeed, yes. And we we often see the problem when the solicitor is then tempted to say, well, I can sue for those fees and the problems that stem from commencing to sue a client for outstanding fees, it can backfire. Um, the letter filed off to the Office of the Legal mm -hmm. Service Commission alleging delay, mm -hmm. lack of professional service, et cetera, et cetera overpricing comes back to bite very hard mm. and there can be a uh, claim made against the, the lawyer alleging some other type of problem as well with the matter. So what started off in chasing for outstanding fees 
becomes a defence to the Legal Service Commissioner or, or mm. with a claim that's with law cover, that time, effort, emotion. Mm. Uh, we have had many solicitors say to us, I wish I didn't do that in the first place. So. And what I normally say to the solicitors uh, in, in the, I pick my moment, I say I'd rather spend my time on Bondi Beach than work for a client who's not going to pay me, who's likely to want to take me to court. I think why spend their time and effort doing it? I would rather not have the business. Yeah, yeah, wise words and otherwise go down the track of having the, the fees cost assessed and that, that can be a far better way to do it as well. One of the firms I visited, I remember uh, we actually recommended the partners gain some training in, in financial management, seek some advice there so they could get on board their, their accounts and understand it better and uh, particularly cash flow. It just seems to be an area where some practitioners do struggle with that importance of cash flow management and controlling debtors, debtor days. What about the importance of invoicing and invoicing promptly. What are your views on that? Um, I always believe that you invoice as soon as possible after the end of the matter or some important in, uh, event that might have occurred in that matter before the end. You, you bill as quickly or as soon as possible. Yeah. The earlier of the end of a month or some event within that matter. This, the longer you delay, the less likely you're going to be paid. If you've mm -hmm. had a great win with a client, obviously get the bill out the next day, forget about the next client, forget about anything else, you get your bill out. I think a lot of this is attitudinal. Mm -hmm. I think that lawyers struggle with the concept that they are a business person as well as a lawyer. Right, yes. And I think they have this feeling that, then, that they've always got to get on to the next client matter because that client is expecting their advice, whatever. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't believe that. I believe that you look after yourself as well as looking after your clients. Because if I look after myself, I can better look after my clients. If I've got cash flow coming in, I'm going to be a much happier person and therefore I'm going to be a much better lawyer. Yeah, yes, yeah, right. The balance sheet, if we look at the firm's financial position at a point in time, which is the balance sheet, what are the things that you typically look for in the law firm's balance sheet that reveals the financial health of the firm or flags the lack of health and some risk management issues there? Looking at a balance sheet, well, you always got to understand the nature of the practice that you're looking at because sometimes the balance sheet will look different depending upon the nature of um, the work that they're doing. If you've got a personal injury practice has a very large amount of work in progress, um, you look at other firms that might not have, very, they'll have very few debtors because they should be billing collecting almost simultaneously. Mm -hmm. Putting that all aside, I always, to me, the key thing to look at at a balance sheet is the level of debt the level of liabilities and how that relates to the level of assets within that practice. It mm -hmm. gives me a very strong indicator of whether that practice is solvent, whether that cash flow is good. If the particularly outside debt, bank debt is high, it generally is going to indicate that they are living beyond their means. Yeah. So I always, when I went out to most practices, I look at the balance sheet before I look at the P&L because it helps me understand the PL. 
Uh, and But that's broadly what I'm looking for. I'm looking to see d- the level of debtors, mm-hmm. how high it is. I'm looking to see unbilled disbursements because for the life of me, I just don't understand why they pay their clients' costs. Yes. And yes. my policy when I talk to everybody or my start point in re- with reference to a policy with unbilled disbursements is they are the client's costs and we do not fund them at all. Yeah. So it gives me a sense when I look at the balance sheet, I'm looking for all of those sorts of things and, and it's helping me understand the way they've structured their practice. And have you been to law firms where they haven't had the balance sheet and the P&Ls available? Um, no, you've always got them because they get paid by the, you, they get, sorry, not paid, they get done by the, you know, the tax, you know, the the tax accountant or the accountant at some point in time. What they might not do is have interim ones, um, you know, on a monthly basis or quarterly basis. That generally wasn't the problem. The problem I found that often they were prepared but they didn't look at them. Yes. Um, and that, too, again, is comes back to this thing that I am not a businessman, you know, mm-hmm. you know uh, or I don't have the focus on my practice as a business. This is not all practices. Yeah. This is the bad ones, you know, the ones that don't do this well. Yes, yes, because obviously there okay. are a number who do yeah. it extremely, extremely well. well. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but with the claims and the yeah, claims-prone yeah. situation, yeah. we do see that correlation, yeah. So the management of the, the firm's working capital, if we look at the cash flow and, and lock-up, we've touched on cash flow and its importance, and not all uh, solicitors understand that principle of lock-up and what it means. So do you want to just explain that a little bit? Can, can I, I'm going to take it a step back because to understand lock-up, you've got to understand the cash flow within a practice. Mm-hmm. You improve your cash flow when you improve the time it takes you from the time you start on a particular file, the time it takes from that point all the way through to when you ultimately get the money in your bank account. All right. Mm-hmm. The longer you take, obviously, the poorer your cash flow is going to be. I call that the timeline. And if you want to improve your cash flow, you've got to crunch that timeline. You've got to keep yeah, pushing yeah. from either from the one end and just pushing back all the time. And that gets back right back to your billing policies, your policies about your policies about un, un, you know client disbursements. It's about how quickly you bill and all those sort of things come together to give you an average number of days if you do any sort of calculation that's going to take you from the beginning to the end. Mm-hmm. The longer you take the more money you're going to have tied up in your uh, in your files. The biggest asset, in my opinion, particularly monetary asset in any practice, is the money that you have tied up in your files. Yes. And that's going to be the value of the time, the work in progress, whether you record it or not, and the, the amount of time uh, or the amount of money, rather, that you got tied up in your debtors and when you add up the the work in progress and you add up the, the the dollar value of the work in progress, the dollar value of your debtors and the dollar value of your un, unbilled disbursements, that is lockup. Mm-hmm. It's just the language of saying you've got that amount of money locked up in your files. Yeah. And if, again, if you had a somebody running an import distribution business having a warehouse worth of stock. I tell you right now, they manage that stock like you cannot believe. 
They want to get that stock out the door as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. They don't want to have to write off any of that stock. Our stock is a file. Yes. But we just don't, well, the firms that have these problems just don't manage it mm. as well. And that's what you've got to, that's, that's the whole point of all of this is trying to drum into everybody the understanding that every time you do not send out a, a bill, that money is now tied up in your files rather than being in your pocket or in your bank balance. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, very important points there. Looking at the profit and loss, and that reflects the results from the practice operations over its reporting period, um, when you're looking to review and improve profitability of practices, what do you see as the key issues for the solicitor to focus on? Yeah, well, the first thing, I, when I go in or when I look at a practice, I just want to work out if they made a profit. Yes. Okay, and it's what I call a real profit. Mm -hmm. What I do and what I when I sit down with the partner or the owner of the, the law firm, I just say, do you, do you make a profit? And they said, yes. And I said, define your profit for me. And broadly speaking, because it's been the standard for many years, they will say their profit is uh, the profit available to me after I've paid all the expenses of my practice. I, I say to them, well, what about the money that you might have taken out? Mm -hmm. um, some of them today, because they incorporated legal practices, take out some other, in the old days, they used to take it out as drawing. So they didn't see it as some sort of salary for their time and effort and skill. For those who don't understand it, I say, fine, you say that's your profit. I would turn around and say, say to the solicitor, take into account the time and effort that you spend in this practice, the skill levels that you have, the training, the number of years that you've been working in the legal profession, what sort of value do you put in your time and effort with respect to your practice? How much, I mean, if you went out somewhere else and did exactly what you did, you weren't the partner you wanted to be paid, how much, put a value on that. Mm -hmm. And they generally do. Then I say, well, let's compare that value to what you defined as profit. And if the amount they defined as their value is greater than their profit. I said, well, you know, in real respect, you're just working for a salary. Mm -hmm. yep. and, and probably not a very good salary. And if you are in a practice, if the solicitor is in a practice in its productive period, not at the wind up and not in the wind down period, in their productive period, I would say to them, if you can't really assess your worth, think about if you went to work in-house in a government department somewhere. How much do you think you're going to earn? Now, the midpoint in the range is probably going to be around about 110,000. Well, surely mm -hmm. that's what, I mean, is a good way of getting, assessing your profitability. Yeah. Now, having said that mm -hmm. and saying to them, well, you're not even making a profit, now let's use that to go and see why you are not making a profit. And then we get into, do you have any sense of where, what parts of your practice are profitable? Yes. If you've yeah. got a, let's say, a conveyancing side to your practice and you've got a litigation side, do you know which side is generating the profits for you? And do you often see that, that there's that clarity of understanding which of the legal service areas are profitable and which aren't? In the smaller practices, not at all. Yeah. In the larger practices, yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And so I, they say to me, what do you do? I said, well, what we really got to do is take this profit and loss and sensibly just split it. 
between the two practice areas, making reasonable assumptions where you don't have the data. And we'll pretty soon be able to work, work it out. And when we do the talks for Law Club, I say to everybody, do it once a year. At least get a sense of where you're making money. If you're not making money in the area, why are you going to continue to practice in that area? If you've had clients that you've had problems with, why are you continuing to practice in that particular area? Yes, one of the experiences I had was with a firm that had a very busy conveyancing area and they were very busy and um, the owner said that they brought on another conveyancer to help with the workload and they were very pleased with that and the question was, but is it profitable? And there was the stop and saying, well, what do you mean? We're extremely busy. Look at, look at the revenues. We've increased our revenue. But not drilling down and looking at the profitability of that practice area, they had been reducing their fees for the work done there mm. and it was the other practice areas that was actually supporting the, the conveyancing arm of it. Yeah. So until you get that proper analysis, and it doesn't have to be rocket science analysis yeah. either, does it? It's no, it can not be at quite all. simple to look at where the value is and uh, where some of the problems are. Well, you don't teach, feeding off what you just said there, I mean, you don't have to get rid of that area. It, then, then you start to think, well, what do we need to do to make it more profitable? And yeah. broadly, in every practice I've seen in the last 25, 30 years I've been doing this work, the, the Broad, the biggest improvements are always on the revenue and productivity side, not necessarily on the expense side. You, in a legal practice, you don't make more money by getting rid of staff. No. You make more money by making your staff more productive, making yourself more productive. And that's broadly the way I, used to, I, I, I go about it. I start focusing on the, on the bottom line mm -hmm. and then try and drive the analysis wherever it might take us. And looking at billable hours and fixed fees, some, some firms say, look, we, we have fixed fees uh, with our work, so I don't know what the work in progress is. Mm. What, what's your answer to that? Do you... Well, there's a number of things I'll, I'll, you know, relative, about fixed fees. I'm a, I'm a proponent of fixed fees because I think uh, clients like them and I'm a user of legal services. When people come to me, I want to know what it costs me. When they talk about how do you know whether you're profitable or not, and you and the issue I would then say, do you time, if you are time recording in the litigation side of your practice, why don't you think about time recording in the fixed fee part of your practice to get a sense. Mm. However, even if you don't do that, that practice group analysis that we were talking about early on will drive, will tell you whether you are making the sort of profits that you think you are making. Because then you will see in that fixed fee areas, let's call it the conveyancing, are we making the sort of profits we were hoping to make? And if you're not, I would suggest that it's to do with the level of your fees. My experience is it's always, not always, absolutely predominantly on the revenue side was where you have to make the changes. Yes, okay. Yeah, yeah very interesting work there. Anthony, moving to the area of due diligence, and we're looking through our claims analyses over the years, we know that a failure to conduct due diligence when acquiring files through sale or, or merger is a significant claims-prone area. Can I put to you, what, what should be considered by a, a solicitor when they're buying a new practice? Okay. It's interesting you say that because a lot of the firms I went out to for law cover of the years who had bad claims history actually purchased the problem. 
Mm-hmm. And the biggest failure um, that I came across in this area was their failure actually to read law covers policy document. Because the policy document deals with a really important clause, which is called the prior practice determination clause, which essentially allows law cover to make a determination whether you, when you purchase something, become the successor of the practice which you just acquired or merged with. And that has quite significant implications to your risk or your claims profile. Let's say, Mal, um, I come along and buy your practice. You're a bit of a rat bag. You haven't done the Thanks. right things over the years. <laughs> and you've seen me and uh, you know that I like to purchase stuff and you you've, you've present everything uh, to me in a lovely box and I buy your practice mm-hmm. in a manner that, that I'm seen to be the successor. All that claims history and all that you have, in essence, just gets taken out of your bucket mm-hmm. and tipped into my bucket. Yep. All of a sudden, I now have uh, a claims history that is really in the spotlight. Right. And what it does, it not only impacts this year, but also impacts the next five years because it stays, it is, it stays around for that period of time. Mm-hmm. I must admit a couple of times I went out to practices uh, to go and speak to them who had this problem. And boy, when I came in, did I get a, did, they, they a were waiting for law cover to come around at some stage and I was seen as law cover and they really gave it to me. Mm-hmm. Basically saying that, you know, there were all sorts of things, how unconscionable it was, et cetera, et cetera. And I let them, always let them have the say, run the course, when they're finished, I used to say to them, by the way, um, did you ever read Law Cover's policy document? And they look at me like stunned mullets, you know. Mm-hmm. And I say, well, if I was a client coming to your practice and I told you I signed a commercial contract and I didn't read it, what would you say? Mm-hmm. And that was the point. They, they never, ever read or fully understood the import of that. Now... To me, that is probably the first thing I would say to anybody who's thinking of buying a practice. Make sure you understand that practice's uh, claims history because it could have unintended consequences to you in terms of your premiums in the future. Because you're really looking at the assets and the liabilities. Yes, of, yes, of you that are. And, and it's not any of the liabilities that you see on the balance sheet. It's the, what's called the contingent liabilities. Yeah. The abilities that are not recorded there. Mm-hmm. And so it's, you start, to me, it's like I say, well, even when I've advised people in the years whether they, when they are buying, the first thing you want to get a handle on is their claims history. You want to get their, a, good cl- uh, a good handle on the people that you're buying from. Do they have, you know, any black marks in them at the law society, et cetera, et cetera. So to get the claims history, the acquirer, can ask the owner of the law firm to provide them with their claims history from law cover. Yes. And uh, that can be one of the first steps. Yes, 100%. And if they prevaricate or they don't provide it, as I used to say to everybody, it's time to take a bit of a walk. Yeah. Yes, because the question would have to be why aren't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Just because you have a claims history also does not mean that that practice is in any way a, a disastrous practice 
It, it can be that there were problems at a particular time. It depends on the scenarios and circumstances. Of course it does. Yes, it does, but it does have, attaches a liability on you as the acquiring firm. It's yes. not, it's the first step. That's all it is. There's a range of other stuff mm. that mm -hmm. um, if you're buying, you can go through. Look, I've had some good checklists. They, I'm not saying they're definitive, but they're a bloody good start. Okay. All right. And it, that'll get you down, going down the right track with the help of your accountants and everybody else that you might need to advise you in, in that regard. Because on the website, there's the basic due diligence checklist, which which suggests, and that it is it's, it is fundamental, and there are suggestions to consider. And one of yes. that is the claims history. Another one may be to look at uh, with with uh, understanding that you've got client agreement to have a look at the uh, firm's files and uh, do a sample yeah. audit. Yeah. Because you want to see that the the clients, for example, are similar to your existing clients. Fees. Yes. Match. Yes that there's not a big disparity between the fees of the firm that you're about to acquire and, and um, also the um, their cash flow as well, the management of the cash flow and do they have clients that actually are good payers mm. so they're buying quality yes, quality, yeah. and that's one thing to consider. Every one of those things in your in law covers checklist is really when you put them all together, what they're trying to help the buyers uh, determine is when they by somebody else's practice, how likely is it that they are going to sustain that practice going into the future? How likely is it that fee base will stay once they acquire and the, the solicitor who's departing is no longer around? How likely is it that the profitability will be sustained? Yeah. And that's the, that's the judgment call that everybody, a purchaser is making when they're looking at that is, can I buy it and incorporate it into mine and still sustain what I thought I bought? Okay. Yeah. And from the flip side, this is what the law firm owner should be considering when selling a firm, that these are the questions that a prudent buyer will be asking yes. and some of the information that they will be expecting. And that's, to me, the importance of maintaining that good business plan and having that process throughout so it is able to be presented to a potential acquirer. The, the big issue is that there's a lot of baby boomers, my age group out there, um, just turned 60, maybe, you know, hitting mm -hmm. towards that time when they want to retire. And you've got to have to have, if you're hoping to sell it, you, you need to have something that's that somebody's going to want to buy. Yeah. And they're going to want to buy it if they see it is sustainable. Okay. Yeah, no, good point, good point. And that is part of the succession plan and to start that earlier rather yes. than later. Well, uh, yeah, one would hope they started before they hit their 60s, yes. Yeah, exactly <laughs> right. Yes, okay, that's very good. And on our final topic, Anthony, I just want to ask you about the issue of billings where we so often see a disconnect between the, the partner's billing rates and what is actually realised. It's the partner who says, my fees are $450 an hour but when we look at the true billable hours and the fees charged, it actually is, in one case, I've seen where it's as low as $225 an hour. There's a huge disconnect between what is perceived to be the billing rate and what's actual. Yeah. Why? Um, I think there's, uh, th there are two, two or three main reasons. Firstly, why are they at 450? A lot of people will go and see a survey and they will see that... Um, owners, partners in their particular area, 
uh, are charging the the medium rate is four fifty, so I better be four fifty. Uh-huh. Okay. Yep. The truth of it is, a lot of them don't have the confidence to mm. to sell their services at that rate. They are somewhat embarrassed mm-hmm. uh, to bill at that rate, and therefore, when it comes time to prepare the bill for the client and comparing the time and the the, the number of hours they've spent times yeah, that billing yeah. rate, they just are not comfortable relative to the value. But they start off not being comfortable at the 450. Part of it is that they're not really organized well enough to be able to do that work in less hours so that the high billing rate doesn't convert into a um, amount of a bill that they are not comfortable with. Right. And what I've done over the years relative to the billing rate, when when I've come across this and I say to people, why do you charge 450? You're mm-hmm. obviously not comfortable. You're not getting anywhere near it. Um, why do you do it? And they give me the example. That's that's the medium one I rate. I said you should lower it. And they say, at what rate? At what level do you think I should drop it to? Mm-hmm. Okay, I said, all right. I reckon you should charge yourself out at $200 an hour. The eyebrows go <laughs> up. The, yes. They say, oh, what? I say, oh, well, you're obviously confident to sell at that, at that level. How about 225 And the eyebrows go up but not as much. And you slowly mm-hmm. inch it up to a point where you can tell from the body language and from the reaction, There's you're now hitting the level where you're about to tip over the edge. And generally speaking, I say to people, don't charge at three fifty and oh sorry four fifty an hour. Yeah. That's our example. Charge at three fifty an hour, but bill and collect everything. Yeah, and have the confidence yes. to do it. If you're going to be at four fifty, you probably have to invest a lot more effort, time in your work processes, your IT, and everything else to enable you to do it more efficiently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I would. The one time when I was at a practice within the CBD here, I could prove to them that they would make more money by dropping their feed, their billing rate down by about $100, $125 per hour once they gave me the commitment that they were comfortable selling it. And that's the discipline. And that's the critical part, that commitment mm. and then the confidence and backed up with that discipline of not writing off, yeah. not discounting, and sticking to their policy, and I think, yeah, that's uh, well. well I just, just, I mean, I always, I said it early on, and I'll say it again now. It's, it always comes back. It comes down to attitude. Yeah. Um, the people I've seen who make the best progress in this area have a bad circumstance. They write off a big sum of money, and then they vow to themselves they're never, ever, ever going to allow that to happen again. Yes. And once that you get that epiphany and you get that change in mindset, the light bulb goes on and, my gosh, you, it's amazing how quickly people can improve. Mm. It is not difficult. You just have to be you, – you've got to have the guts, the desire, whatever it is, whatever the language is, to do it. Yeah. Yeah, thanks, Anthony. That's uh, fabulous. And uh, – it certainly is challenging running a practice. It's a lot more challenging today than it was 20 years ago. That discipline, that understanding of the finances and applying good financial management processes we see as crucial. 
and uh, try and encourage all solicitors to get on board with improving their financial management knowledge as well. Because there's no doubt about it, we have the evidence with over 10 years of going out to law firms to see that one of the root causes contributing to claims arising is poor financial management. So, um, look, thank you so much for your time today. We really do appreciate it, Anthony. And uh, just a reminder that uh, Anthony does present on one of our workshops, which is all about the money. It's a half-day seminar. It covers this and more, and we strongly recommend solicitors to embrace it. Thank you very much. Thanks, Anthony. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Risk On Air by Law Cover. Join us for the next episode and subscribe to stay up to date.